Brandon, do you know how sometimes when you're driving around and someone pulls up next to you in a Mustang and you're at a stoplight and they race you for no reason? Does this ever happen <laughs> I do, to you? I, yes, I am very familiar with this. And, and, and you look at your own car and you're like, what about my car and my general steez causes you to think that I would be into this even a little bit? So that's something that I grew up with my whole life, learning to, to drive in Texas. And the way that it went was what you just described, right? I pull up in either a car that is, is not fast at all, or later on, I pulled up in a car that looked fast, but wasn't actually very fast, at least not compared to their like GT350 Mustang or M3 or whatever. And for some reason, you know, the light turns green and that car is just hauling ass as if we are in a race that I never agreed to. <laughs> That's a violation of my right to not race. Yeah. So in Colorado, there is a different thing that happens that has happened to me enough now in the almost two years that I've lived here that I am convinced that it's a real thing and I don't know why. And that is that okay. the reverse situation happens which is to say that a car pulls up next to me and still insists on racing me except instead of it being me and my not fast car and them in their souped up mustang it is them in a car that has no business racing still insisting on doing it <laughs> oh they because i forget you you drive a car that's known to be fast yes yeah and so that that brings out that brings out the the inner uh, I don't know race bro I, I in, guess but it, the thing okay so here's an example it, it actually in a Toyota Tercel driver worse on my motorcycle I can be you know at a stoplight on my motorcycle light turns green I am casually pulling away from the intersection and some 2002 Toyota Corolla is just pinning the throttle just going as fast as they can and i can just hear the engine like <laughs> as i'm just like very very casually driving next to them um and i don't get it because like i'm sitting there like my guy i my motorcycle will go 100 miles an hour in second gear we are not racing. I am just operating a yeah. motorcycle in your vicinity. <laughs> and, and like for a while, I was like, this this can't really be happening. Like it, it is just like some weird like mini version of narcissism for me to think that these people are racing me. Like they're not really that concerned. But it has happened so many times now that I am convinced that it is a real thing. And I cannot oh, uh, figure yeah. it out. No, it's it. So. There was a period of time in my life where I drove a car that was visibly fast. Um, it was a Subaru WRX that was like tricked out and had the big wing on it. And I didn't put all of these parts on this car. They were, you know, but I did. I purchased it with a, a bunch of like uh, a bunch of like STI upgrades having been done to it um, before the STI hit the United States. And so the, the person that bought it before me as Subaru WRX drivers were and possibly are want to do bolted a bunch of shit onto it and then you know i continued the bolting of shit onto the car uh for during my ownership and i uh, like i remember one time pulling up next to a corvette and the corvette was like row, row, row. and i'm like yeah I, you know there's no chance that this car is going to beat a corvette but sure yeah. so we did our little stoplight race to the next stoplight and he's like that's a really nice car <laughs> he's like what stage are you at like super friendly kind of yeah, racing yeah. stuff 
And that said, I was I was not a good driver. I probably I'm certainly still not a good driver. I'm actually I know I'm known to be a shitty driver. Uh, I do my best. That's all I'll say. Uh, but I don't do the fasty drivey stuff mm -hmm. anymore. Ever since I was hauled up in front of a judge where other people were in shackles and chains and oh, God. being like, I was like, oh, this is for real, like prison people stuff. And <laughs> the DA, the DA looks at me in front of the judge and is like, hey, we're not going to suspend your license. We're going to, you know, ticket you for improper passing and then just plead out and pay $600 fine and then go back about your business. No points on your license. And I was like, that was a, after that court date of seeing people like, you know, literally in shackles, uh, I was like, oh, maybe I should change my driving habits significantly. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I haven't I haven't been Mr. Racy Boy ever since. But so I definitely remember, though, the experience of people pulling up. It only happens rarely because I drive a non anonymous ass like German sedan mm -hmm. that is me. Like it would have been a sports car 15 years ago yeah. in terms of like zero to 60 time or whatever. But you wouldn't first off, you wouldn't know it from the way I drive it. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't know it to look at it. And so it's pretty rare that somebody would roll up on me and be like, Hey, let's go brother. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't, you have absolutely got the wrong guy. Like 100% you have misread this situation entirely. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely, I don't know what it is that inspires people to feel like they need to compete and yeah. that everybody that they see is a potential competitor, but like, whoa, whoa, whoa that's, I don't know if you know this. I'm transporting myself and potentially my family from one place to another. Mm -hmm. I, I did not enter the fucking Thunderdome yeah. to, to drive my kids to school. Yeah. I understand, like, if someone's driving a fast car, like, I think it's silly, but I can at least get that they are, like, they have a point to prove. You know, they just want to, like, show off their fast car by by just, like, leaving you in their dust. What I don't understand is not driving a fast car and still having a point to prove. <laughs> Especially against somebody where it's like, look, if you roll up next to a bullet bike and you are driving anything other than like a Ferrari Enzo, you are about <laughs> to demonstrate the inferiority of four wheeled vehicles. I know. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, it's 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 very silly, but it, it happened to me again yesterday. And I was like, man, this I, I have I've accepted that this is a thing that apparently happens. In Colorado, uh, that is the inverse of the thing I'm used to from Texas, and I am gonna I'm gonna open the podcast with this because because it it's it's so strange and I think very funny. I find it very funny. In yeah, agreed. <laughs> I also never raced back. Like I just let them have it. You know, I'm like, look, if it's yeah. if it is this important to you to beat me, like please go ahead, go go right ahead. Yeah, it's fine. I don't care. Yeah. Ah, <sighs> wow. So I want to do a, a quick bit of follow up, by the way, on something that you you raised concern about mm -hmm. considerable concern. And, you know, with good somewhat good reason, the renting a pool thing, we did go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. The Airbnb for pools deal. We went ahead and did that yesterday. So I, I have to tell you this very story very quickly that it does not tell you on a map where these pools are. It just tells you how many miles away it is. And it doesn't run it through any kind of like we talked about this a little bit yesterday. It doesn't run it through like a Google Maps API and say it is by driving distance X yeah. number of miles. It's just, hey, your pin in a map is here and the pin of this is here and that's 11 miles apart. And the pool that we rented was like, oh, 11 miles away. In your brain, when you hear 11 miles, you think, oh, 10 to 15 minutes yeah. to get somewhere because that's generally in a freeway-ish city like Austin. That's 
That's what you expect. Well, there is this one weird part of Austin that happens to be like as the crow flies 10 or 10 or 12 miles away, but is actually like a 35 mile drive to get there Mm -hmm. because you have to go over to where the dam is over a river and like navigate through this, this area. And so it was this just monstrously long drive. Uh, we basically spent an hour and a half plus in the car, almost two hour drive in the car to get to a swimming pool in somebody's backyard. But my friend, it was totally worth it. Really? It was totally worth it. Yes, because they so here's first off, here's so these are like rich people that live in rich neighborhood in Richie Rich Town, uh, part of Austin, that is inaccessible on purpose. And and so we go into this gated community and the gate agent's like, You're not on the list. And we're like, um, we should be on the list. And he's like, You're not on the list. What's your name again? And and my and my wife's like, you know, Jessica Hayes. He's like, no, you're not on the list. He's like, now I have a Jason, Jessica Hayes over here on the list. Like after three or four minutes of negotiating with this guy, what? Like he literally repeated our own names back to us and said, now I have these people on the list. And I'm like, that's literally what we just told you our names were. <laughs> so, like, this place is so fancy that you have like a comically incompetent gate, uh-huh. you know, security uh-huh. guard. Like the movies. I was like, oh, my God. It's like we're in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and then we go to this like Beverly Hills ass backyard with this Beverly Hills ass pool and rented it for like 60 bucks an hour. So I think, you know, getting a taste of the good life. Yeah. You know, let mm-hmm. those people like hang out in their house and keep their curtains closed or they may or may not even be home. Who cares? This is our pool for two hours. Can was, you imagine? It was, it was quite lovely. The HOA outcry when they discovered <laughs> that this is a thing. Like people like there were so much pushback on Airbnb. Yeah. And now it's like you're now locked in like Airbnb was a, a little more equal opportunity in terms of like who who could Airbnb their place like someone could Airbnb their, you know, middle of the road apartment and apartment complexes might not love that. But now you are opting into a certain socioeconomic level by virtue of the yeah. fact that it's people who can rent pools. Yep. And those neighborhoods are way more likely to not be thrilled about strangers pulling up into their neighborhood and just chilling for several hours. Yep. Yep. You, I can totally see the sheriff from Big Lebowski showing up and being like, stay out of my beach community, Lebowski. <laughs> it, this, it feels like this is going to go the way of like Lyft or not Lyft. What was it called? Bird and Lime. Oh, the scooter companies? The scooters, where people were just like, this, we didn't sign up for this. Are you kidding me? This is this is completely not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there will be, if, if it reaches, I don't think it'll reach this scale. I think that, I think their plan is to hover just underneath some kind of a radar. Yeah. It, you know, this isn't, doesn't ha- have the same in, community level impact as, 10% of your community renting out their houses periodically to vacationers Yeah, where that, there would be immediately a public outcry. It's like, look, these people are showing up in our neighborhood for two hours at a stretch. Like who gives a shit? But yeah, it is fun to kind of be the element. Uh-huh. Oh, we're going to let that element into our neighborhood. Yeah. We're the fucking element. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so it wasn't weird. It wasn't weird. Like, being no, once once we like it was weird to pull up to somebody's house in a neighborhood yeah. and then walk through their side gate. And then at that point, all bets are off. It's over. It's like, oh, this is our pool now. We we're okay. supposed to be here. Okay. Let's play and splash around and uh, let kids be kids and uh, hang out with, the, you know, as adults and talk. And, and so, like, it, it didn't wind up being super weird. It was fine. I was really surprised at how quickly it became like, OK. OK, well, that's cool. That that sounds like a nice 
I still it still irks me in theory, but it sounds like it worked out. Yeah, and I think they've I think they've hammered out some of the at least at least quasi figured out some of the liability stuff where you sign a waiver, uh, you know, as a part of your signing up with the site or whatever. So theoretically, you probably shouldn't try to sue somebody if you fall and break your neck or whatever. Oh, yeah. But yeah, the the liability aspect I think is probably covered by the website saying, "Hey, everybody everybody involved with anything around this waves anything." Yeah. Like yeah. And that's probably like they had like one general counsel type person take a look at this. You know, they probably paid like twenty five hundred dollars to a lawyer to like draft something mm-hmm. really quickly. Like I could just see how this startup happened. Like this is somebody's side project. Yeah. This is not a yeah. this is not a business. Is this like a covid business? Did it exist before the like lockdown? I I can't imagine it popped up this quickly. Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling it probably existed before, but it almost had no reason to before. Yeah. And, then it just and they're exploded. like, oh, my gosh, this is our moment. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. Huh. I wonder. Hmm. I wonder what other COVID businesses we will see. Or, There's going to be a whole retrospective of this. Because of yeah. And then you wonder, like, well, what happened? You know, what happens after this? Which yeah. parts stick with us and which part, you know, which ones kind of were temporary crutches? And, yeah. And that will be a really interesting retrospective uh, if the world does not end. Yeah. So that'll be that'll be really fun. Let's do that. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Get to the retrospective. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. I yeah. I'm super happy for you. I know that like being able to go out, like it's not Schlitterbahn, but I know that you know that that kind of core like get out in summertime, do some some swimmy stuff, is uh, a very big part of of your family. So I'm very glad that you got to find something to hopefully approximate it a little bit. Yeah, it was good. It's, you know, I got a little bit of a headache hangover from being out in the sun and a little dehydrated. And like it was that was really good for me. I was like my body was like, what is this? What is this vitamin that is being absorbed through my skin? I don't I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) So that was good. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, I want to give you one other quick update. Okay. the uh, David Lynch chain smoking masterclass Mm -hmm. from the uh, eponymous episode couple episodes back i think uh i did start watching that okay so i i <laughs> it's it's really interesting one of the things he says in his master class is that he's like and one of the lessons i learned is never ever give up final cut and i thought based on the weirdness in the way this is shot and edited i'm gonna go ahead and say he didn't give up final cut on his master class <laughs> <laughs> The, the weird time skips and the weird like periodic cuts to like upside down shots of just cropped to his hair. Uh, I'm going to say that that was that was not uh-huh. uh, these were not these were not directorial choices made by the filmmakers <laughs> at Masterclass. That, that the, you're saying that that doesn't uh, that doesn't fall in line with the rest of the Masterclass directorial style. It doesn't. It's a little more linear than this. <laughs> And the stuff that he talks about is so weird and the stories he tells are are weird, but it's like very like extremely ethereal and basic and what it is to be an artist and his philosophies on, you know, what it is to create art. Mm-hmm. So little instructional content. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, okay, we're going to talk about the idea hopper and how ideas go in the hopper. And I'm like, David Lynch, please do not try to describe your brain to other people in a way that could possibly be construed as instructive. That is not going to help anyone. 
Like telling people how David Lynch's brain works. I, I mean, we already talked about how like the 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 conceit of masterclass being constructed or it being instructive is already like bound to fall away. Yeah, it's it's it is it is pure fallacy. Yeah, especially when you pull in somebody like David Lynch and be like, "Tell us your secrets of filmmaking," and he's like, "Okay, <laughs> sure." <laughs> yeah, like, could you could you please teach the class how you've managed to make like these like inimitable movies for the last several decades? Uh, I mean, so like even when you were describing it, like if you cut off. And like the and say that it's instructive part of that sentence, like David Lynch, explain how your brain works. Like I'm, I'm there. I'm extremely there. Like I, it, I'm not going there to to so that my brain will work like David Lynch's brain will work. Nobody but wants that. I want to. I, I want to hear that. That sounds. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> what it, it's it's pretty great. Does he does he or does he not smoke the entire time? So they cut out all the parts of him actually smoking. And so you see smoke pouring out of a cigarette next to him. And then the <laughs> cigarette is out. They show him with a coffee cup. And then they like, yeah. this guy looks like he's like, he's at this point, his body is probably constructed of like 30% like residue of coffee and cigarettes. Uh-huh. Like that's it, probably many of the molecules in his system are yeah. built up of those things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, but you don't actively see him take a sip of his coffee or smoke his cigarette. Cause I, I guess he cut that out, which is, which is weird. Cause I would have loved to just see him just, I would like to see a super cut of all the drags on cigarettes that he took while he was doing this masterclass, which was clearly like him in a room for probably six solid hours. Let's get, you know, four to six hours of, of doing this. And then you just get this weird sense of like, just in his masterclass, you feel like time is a social construct. Like while you're <laughs> while he's talking, well done. Do you have like a standout takeaway, like something that really was just like nope. this is this is peak David Lynch? No, I would I would say it's more just the feeling you get while he's talking about things that don't make any sense to your brain. Okay, and okay. It just like you're like he's saying words that sound normal about. Uh, you know, you just, you're fishing for ideas. You're, f- you, and, and you might leave, but if you're in a desert and you would throw your line out, you could wait many thousands of years for the desert to fill up with water and there to be enough water for there to be fish. But if you go where there are fish, you can catch a fish and the fish is an idea. Has, and I'm like, David Lynch, you absolute mad lad. Has he talked about, uh, the diner that he used to go to? This is like one of my favorite David Lynch stories. Not yet. It was, it was a so while I ago. Haven't finished this. I, I don't know if he'll. I don't know if he'll bring it up. But it's like, I'm. I'm also sure that he's done other things like this. But for a long time, David Lynch had this thing where he would go to this one diner every day at like 2 p.m. and order a chocolate milkshake and French fries every single day for years. Wow. And he would sit there and and like take their napkins and he would drink his chocolate milkshake and eat the french fries and like just like brainstorm ideas on diner napkins and leave. And he would have like casting interviews and he, they would like have to meet him at the diner while he, you know, ate his french fries and drank his chocolate milkshake. And there's actually an interview with Laura Dern where she like when she was first meeting David Lynch and Kyle MacLachlan I think to do blue velvet that he was like, Oh yeah, come, come meet me at this diner. 
And she's like, I just sat there while like David Lynch and Kyle MacLachlan just fucking drew on napkins for like an hour and talked about like the meaning of life or whatever. And I was just like, I'm sold. This is like, I have met my, my <laughs> counterparts. Um, just, just like, I don't, I mean, just to, to be David Lynch, right? Like, just like to be so singular in everything you do. Like, I don't think it's a thing you could even aspire to be. Like, you would you would fail if you aspired to, to it. But the fact that he just is that is something I find so fascinating. Yeah, you're, you're, you're glad that there are people like that in the world. I wouldn't want to be that person. Yeah. But, he, you know, he really values – I think he really values ideas in a way that's almost a little bit refreshing for somebody working in tech where our mantra is ideas are cheap and execution is everything. Mm -hmm. And that is a great – you know, of course engineers say that. Uh, mm -hmm. because the, you know, that, that because we have so many people with relatively cheap ideas, because ideas in this industry are more plentiful than the ability to execute on them. And the kind of people that bring like ideas to you and are like, Oh, look, I'm the idea guy. And you're like, you know what? I'm kind of sort of over idea guys. So go fuck yourself. Yeah. But when somebody is an idea guy at the level of David Lynch, you kind of notice. And also he's, he also executes on those ideas. Like, yeah. Yeah, idea guy almost is like pejorative in the sense that it means that they only have the ideas and they don't have the follow through. Right. And and so David Lynch has it. And, and I think what happens sometimes is that David Lynch kind of brought me back from was this cheapening of the concept of ideas because of these idea guys that have ideas, but no execution. Uh -huh. They're not rooted in reality. They're not rooted in, you know, what's possible. And so you wind up with the Elizabeth Holmes. Or is it Elizabeth Holmes? The, the lady from... All the documentaries about Theranos. Is that her name? Oh, I think Elizabeth Holmes is the, the, oh no, it is. You're right. Who am I thinking? I think of the woman from Pitch Perfect. Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. Very yeah, yeah, different yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah. yeah. Highly superior Elizabeth. Yes. So yeah, Elizabeth Holmes is kind of this classic idea guy person who's like, look, just make it work like this. I have the ideas. I tell you how small the device has to be. I tell you what it has to do. And then you do the engineering to figure it out. And it's like, well, Okay, then make an airplane that goes 10,000 miles an hour. Like, ta-da, I'm the idea guy. I had the best idea in the world yeah, just now. Yeah. And so the, those people have cheapened the concept of ideas where David Lynch kind of re-enriches them. And says, no, 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 ideas are beautiful and they're precious and they're worth cultivating and they're worth protecting and they're worth having. They're worth collecting. They're worth noting. And then ultimately they're worth combining and executing on. And I, But if you don't, if you don't value the last part of that pipeline – of executing those ideas, you just see like trash, you know, like, and so there's so much in this industry that's like trash because you have all these idea guys that are like trying to force their ideas into reality because they're not the people who can execute on them. Mm -hmm. And David Lynch's ideas are weird and precious and worth noting and worth saving and capturing. And so there, it did cause me to look at the idea of ideas a little differently. Yeah. So I like that, you know, like it does, I guess that's the main takeaway is the way he values that kind of reminds me that there is something cool and precious about something that we're, we tend to dismiss in our industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to, to see someone who, who absolutely has their head in the clouds, but does not embody the, the stereotype of a person who has their head in the clouds in, in yep. the slightest. No, he's like, he's an unbelievably hard worker, but he understands that daydreaming is a key component of his work. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, that that was so it was worth the trip for that, I guess. Cool. That that is hmm, masterclass sounds interesting. 
It's pretty neat. I'm intrigued. Or you can learn to mix cocktails. Yeah, <laughs> like, or that. And <laughs> it's yeah, there's it's it's fun. Uh, I can recommend on those terms. All right, now it's time to talk about Rainbow Six. Everyone's Siege. favorite segment. Everybody's favorite segment. What are Chris and Brandon playing? The best. I lured you into playing a game that I thought I thought there was like a chance you might enjoy it. I would not have ever even suggested it at all if it wasn't seven dollars. It was seven dollars. So I have to I have to roll back the clock a little bit though on this because I I downloaded this because you said this game is seven dollars. And then subsequently I listened to one of our back episodes where you brought this game up before in the context of saying this is the equivalent of pulling up the the uh, video game store, the Ubisoft video game store, and saying, "Please hurt me." And then I, I realized you had tricked me into downloading a game that was designed to cause pain. So thank <laughs> first and foremost, thank you for that. You're so welcome. It's not that. It's not. It's not that painful. I'm just saying that's what you said, and then you said, "Brandon, you should download this game." And I had forgotten that you had said those words until later, and I was like, "Oh, you you got me. I got you." Yeah, you know, uh, New Horizons. That's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yep. The manifest destiny of my computer PC hard drive. <laughs> Tell me what you thought. We, we played it for a little bit. I think we played like four or five rounds. We, we kind of jumped straight into it without you really having much in the way of, of tutorial. No. Yeah, I definitely didn't. So what I did first, though, and this helped. I want to I want you to know this helped zero percent, maybe one percent. I watched a video on YouTube, like a 25 or 30 minute video uh -huh. about Rainbow Six Siege uh -huh. before we, we jumped into it the first time. And it was like, here are all the character classes and here's what they do. And I was like, oh, my God, this Mortal Kombat ass roster yeah. of like 25 characters on offense and 25 characters on defense. And you're trying to like dig through this like 50 character roster of people with different abilities and different, you know, different styles of play or whatever. And I'm like, and, and they mix and match and you build a team and each person has to be unique on a team. And I'm like, this is like, this is my nightmare. This mm -hmm. is, this is exactly what I don't want in a game is this level of like competitive complexity and, and depth of play that clearly is going to favor experienced play players over novice players. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is going to fucking suck. Like you, you absolutely brought me into a trap. Yeah. So then you're like, do you want to play it? And I was like, Oh, you know, I'll just, I'll try anything once, you know, <laughs> whom yeah. I did not, not play the $7 game that I <laughs> laid out that laid out the price of a cheeseburger for. So we did, we jumped on. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Then I, as far as I could tell, you had a lot of fun. It was a great time, Chris. Yeah. It was a hell of a time. Honestly, I thought the learning curve was going to be a lot steeper based on the fact that there are, there's an entire genre of videos on YouTube called Siege School. Uh huh. Like, <laughs> like why, why is, why would there need to be a, an online school for a video game? Uh, but <laughs> yeah. So it turns out one of the cool things about Siege is that it is that complicated. Uh, if you, if you are playing like competitively or even you're trying to play ranked, there is a lot to, to Siege. It's kind of like if you were learning to play soccer and someone was like, okay, so what you do is to play soccer, you kick the ball in the direction of the goal. And then like if you went and you kicked the ball a bunch of times in the direction of the goal and a couple of times it went in the goal, you would be like, soccer, I got it. 
And like, or there, there is a, but you could win. Not, not. You true. could win by scoring the most goals, or if you murder every player on the opposing <laughs> yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. There uh, are two win conditions, <laughs> and uh, you know that it, it's it's not incorrect that if you want it to to be as reductionist as possible, the, the the point of soccer is you kick the ball in the direction of the goal. But we both know that that does not at all describe the game of soccer uh, in any meaningful way. But you could still have fun if you did that. If you like, played a pickup game of soccer and that's all you knew about soccer, you could still have fun. And and Siege is very much the same way. Like you pointed out, you know, the the actual like objective in, in any round is to like either plant the bomb or plant the diffuser or prevent the other team from planting the diffuser. And you commented at one point like, huh, it seems like no one ever really goes for that. And in random quick matches, you are absolutely right. Sometimes, you know, people will will do that. But quick matches are just like a total crapshoot. It's not even like trying to win consistently. It's just kind of like every round is, is it's a standalone thing. We'll see who wins, who loses, whatever. One of the things you notice if you play for a while, though, is is if you get to the point where, like, let's say you're an attacker and you have like 45 seconds left and it's 2v4 and you've spent the entire round just like focusing on trying to kill the other team. And now suddenly you see the two people who are still alive go like, oh, crap, if we want to win, we have to plant this diffuser. It immediately falls apart because they have not spent any time actually setting themselves up to be able to do that successfully. Whereas what if you watch the like anything like any streamers or any of the esports stuff, it is the complete opposite. They are spending the first two minutes of every round like blowing the hell out of the map setting up like getting information setting up flanks setting up traps killing the defenses traps and then like they have a they have a strategy and they are always going for the diffuser and if they just so happen to kill everyone then that's like a an added bonus but in quick match it's just like well if we don't kill everyone um we're not gonna win like we have not set ourselves up for success at all but sometimes we luck out and that can still be fun especially if you know you're brand new to the game like you don't have to learn all of that stuff. Eventually, you may want to, but you can still play the game and have a basic idea of, like, I'm on defense. That means stop them from coming into this room. And you can get a decent way on, on just that. Yeah, I, I was surprised at how accessible it was given, like, I think the thing that you, you gave me was, like, here are a couple character classes that you should just start with. They're mm -hmm. a little easier. And sometimes I didn't really have a choice. And you're like, but but having somebody there to say, oh, this is the this is the one that does this. Hit this button. This guy is good because he's kind of a grunt and he has a shield. Mm -hmm. And that's probably good for beginners because mm -hmm. uh, you can take a couple extra pops from a, a gun. Or here's the lady that throws, uh, you know, stun charges or whatever. So like being able to grab a quick character class that was like, look, don't, I don't need to, I don't want to learn all the nuances between the different things and discover my play style. I want to discover like how to work in this world. Uh, I was really surprised to find there's no jump button. I was like, no jump button. What? Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a rappel upside down and then shoot into a window button, which is really nice. That, that's very so, cool. And you can fall. That is neat. I mean, like, you yeah, know, a lot of times, like just being able to jump in the middle of a room would not actually be super useful in, in yeah. siege the way it plays out. But like you can, you know, hop up on a table or hop through a window or whatever but it is a little yeah. weird 
Yeah. And then you learn little mini strategies. Like one of them is uh, if you have like a shotgun, mm -hmm. go ahead and blow some holes in the wall in between. Like the environments are super destructible and that is an, a key gameplay element Yeah, that you can like destroy pretty much everything. And you actually have to reinforce certain things that you might want to reinforce to prevent people from breaching in through ways you don't expect while you're playing defense. So uh -huh. that's really interesting. It's a very cleverly designed game and it plays out really fast. Yeah. And it turns out that's exactly the right amount of time to be doing this. Like 30 seconds of prep, three minutes of play, next round. 30 yeah. seconds of prep, three minutes of play. That sounds like not enough time to do stuff, but there's this weird like time expansion effect where three <laughs> yeah. minutes feels like a long time when you're under that much pressure. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it would be exhausting if it went for longer. Yeah. Like utterly yeah. exhausting. Yeah, and everybody's pretty much dead by then anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so you're down to like, you know, 2v2 or whatever by the very end. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's fun and it's pretty well balanced and and it's accessible to new players. That really surprised me. Mm -hmm. And then I had the greatest game of my whole life, which was like, at the end it was like, what, like, I don't remember what, what, what the deal was, but it was like, I was like the last man standing at one point. Yeah, you were the last person alive. And there, and there was, was like a couple people on their team. <laughs> and I was like, pop, 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 pop. The best part was that the, the round before, I think you had also been the last person alive. But they got me. And it just died very unceremoniously. And yeah. you were like, oh, man, I can't go out like that. We got to do we got to do one. more. That was it. Yep. We were playing around and I was like this. We just got spanked on this. I just yeah. cannot go out like this. And it was it was the last round of the night before it was yeah. like bedtime. Yep. And. And it worked out. You, we, had, we were like, I, I think we ended up having like a flawless, like it's best of three. It's it's first to three wins the round. And we had one, two, and we were on the third round. And you were the only one left alive. And like these two people just walked through the door and you blasted them and you won the whole round. And it was like, Rudy, Rudy. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Yep. So that, that was one of the things that like, and I think game games that are well-designed can give relatively new people that moment where they're like, Hey, listen, every once in a while, you're going to catch a break and it's going to be really satisfying. Yeah. Like you can demonstrate that even, you know, even a person of minimal skill can come in and, and periodically, you know, get that couple lucky shots off and win the round and feel great. And, uh, that's a really well-designed game that can do that and still be, balanced for decently competitive play for people that are more experienced mm -hmm. and then we saw a couple people one time they were on the opposing team and we were pissed off and then they were on our a similar person was on our team and we're like no this is actually fair now that i think about it <laughs> yeah, uh, so where they're just like steamrolling everyone else yep somebody yeah. who's like like i think you called it smurfing where yeah. they're like super experienced and they pretend to come in and be like oh hi i'm new yeah and it's like a pool shark coming in to just mop the floor with all the movies <laughs> yeah uh those are those are the moments where it's also sometimes something will happen where you play against an actual team that it's coordinating mm -hmm. and and especially you notice this especially on defense if you're on defense and you're playing against a team that's attacking and they're actually working together you you realize very quickly that you you have yet to grasp the full uh landscape of how to play soccer at that moment um because you see like Huh. Um, two two walls on opposite sides of me just exploded at the same time, and then someone threw a flashbang in, and then I got shot. <laughs> oh, SWAT tactics! Oh, these bastards—they're yeah, talking like, to each other. You're like, we just got like completely handled. I didn't even know you could do that in this game. 
Uh, yeah, the closest thing we got was we had our own Leroy Jenkins who's like, oh, I'm going to run in and suicide with a grenade. And he got the suicide part. Yeah. He didn't get the grenade part. <laughs> he just ran in and died. Yep. <laughs> Good try, though. Good try. Um, yeah, it was fun. Uh, I, thank you for continuing to invite me into these new virtual worlds of like very silly play uh-huh. and uh it's, it. it's fun yeah it's, it's great. A great time all right man let's uh let's move on to our our main topic mm, the meaty topic the meaty topic the meatiest this is something that you actually alluded to maybe on the last episode uh, on a recent episode you were like oh man this is a thing that we should like do a whole podcast about and that is the the notion of the reward curve for developers and, and more specifically how the reward curve flattens once you hit a certain level of experience. Yeah, this is, it's such a big topic that it feels bad to bring it up and know that we're not going to be able to do this justice. We're just not, but also it's not talked about enough because I think everybody in this industry is in the same boat. And particularly in times like this one where the, the economic world is in turmoil and you're not really sure. And there are people actually losing their jobs. And so everybody is supposed to, and I, this just isn't my first rodeo. Every, everybody's supposed to just be grateful that you have a job at all and not ask questions. Mm-hmm. And well, that's not really our style. Like, you know, we can be grateful, but we're going to ask questions. Yeah. And I remember going, I worked for a place that underpaid people by about on about of like a 40 to 50% ratio. Like they literally paid people about 40 to 50% of what their market value was when I went and looked it up. But you know, it was my first job in the industry. So I was like traveling on site, charging a thousand dollars a day for my time. And I was getting paid like $10 an hour. And it was like, wait, what in retrospect, this place was extremely exploitive and we had our big Christmas party. And at the Christmas party, the CEO whose son had just bought a Porsche was like, these are really tough times. Granted, this was like 2002. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, these are really tough economic times. Everybody here, we're canceling bonuses. We're canceling this. We're canceling overtime. We're, this is at the Christmas party. Oh and I want God. everybody here to know how grateful they should be just to have a job right now. And sat down and I was like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of Christmas party is this? So it was, I've been through this before mm-hmm. where, and so I've become somewhat cynical about this because I'm like, also, I know your son is the head of sales and he just bought a Porsche 911. Yeah. Like, so I know something is off and I don't know exactly what it is, but I, you know, cause I was like 23 and mm-hmm. I didn't care that I was underpaid. So now reapproaching this from the angle of here's an industry of people that are paid pretty well. Like basically like one of the last bastions of the middle class is people who work in technology and build software for companies. Mm -hmm. And most of those people did this as a hobby at one point. Like, oh, I like to do software. I would like to make video games or I would like to do this. I like to make websites. I like to, you know, tweak my Neopets site or whatever, you know, it is that got somebody into and interested. And then there is a contingent of people that saw it as a, you know, a job opportunity and, and we're trying to switch careers. And uh, that's probably more the angle that I came from. I wasn't a hobby software developer. I was just looking for something else to do. And, all of those paths are valid, but they all kind of lead to a place where people sort of expect you to be grateful that you have a job doing this. Like, isn't it great that you get paid to do what you would do if you, you know, you essentially would do for free because you like doing open source or whatever. There, There's just something about that that causes this 
I don't even know how to describe it, but there's a sense that you should be grateful that you get to do this for a living. You get paid to do it at all. And please don't look up the chain at other people who are profiting <laughs> from this labor. Yeah. Hmm. And both of those things are true. Like you should be grateful that you get to do this and that you get paid reasonably well generally to yeah, do this like you for have a living. Sweet gig. Yeah, it's a sweet gig. Yeah, there's no denying it. So, but that leads to a weird place where there is a certain point where you pay developers enough to not have to worry about money specifically. Mm-hmm. Like they're not, you, you, you pull them above the poverty line and into the middle class, and then you never have to talk about money with them ever again. And in, and in some industries and in some lines, so think about the management track, think about the sales track. As you grow in experience and capability, the money that you can earn is either linear or actually, you know, sort of exponential yeah. into executive roles. And you can, you can see that, you know, when you go drive around rich neighborhoods, you're like, what are these people doing? They're not all doctors and lawyers. A lot of them are just like salespeople and executives yeah. of, so they've moved up management chains and whatever. And that same track doesn't happen to developers. I have personally employed many developers who have done this for two, three, or four decades. Mm -hmm. And their salary requirements are identical to the salary requirements of somebody who's been doing this for five years, five to 10 years. It doesn't, it levels off logarithmically and then flatlines Mm -hmm. at a certain point in terms of your earning potential as a software developer. And a lot of people are like, well, yeah, I make enough to save up for retirement and, you know, you know, have a college fund for my kids. Like, that's I'm good and I'm and good for them for like understanding and and um not inflating their own needs but also like where's the rest of that money going because their value that they're offering isn't linear yeah the uh, value that developers offer is 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 continues to grow I think some of this I I thought about this a lot partially just from knowing you and partially from I mean honestly from beginning to experience this you know, I'm kind of like on the early stage of the the significantly flattening curve. And I think it is it is an interesting problem that, you know, engin- that software engineers face. And I, I, I think anyone, any kind of job that finds itself having kind of a, a one-to-one relationship with the value that they produce, a software engineer, you know, level of experience and ability and stuff like that absolutely plays a role. But at the end of the day, like one person can still only build so much software. And I, and I think that is often what the pay scale is oriented around is that you are a person who produces uh, a product of some, of some sort. And one person can only produce so much of that product, no matter how good they are. And then the natural reaction to that is to say, like, well, after a certain level of experience, that's actually not even true. You know, I probably code less now than I did five years ago. I definitely code less now than I did five years ago. I think I add significantly more value to whatever company I work for than I did five years ago. And I think that's what probably most people would say in response to that kind of one-to-one metric. But I think as an industry, we have not we either have not updated our our career ladder or our pay scales or anything like that to account for the fact that that you end up having this kind of like indirect multiplicative effect or we have just chosen not to and instead we promote those people to management and we just call it good um and that that often doesn't doesn't pay off that well <laughs> for a lot of you for some people it's great some people get promoted to management and they flourish 
but I've I've definitely seen lots and lots of engineers who went into management because they had nowhere else to go and then hate it. But but they were like, well, it was it was that or or ride the flat curve for an indefinite amount of time. Yep. Yeah, this is and it's such a well-worn truism in this industry that it almost doesn't bear talking about except for you have to set the stage with the state of things today. It's very, very, this part is pretty widely talked about that, hey, promoting, you know, quote unquote, promoting people into management isn't a promotion, that that is a, you're asking them to change careers. And that knowledge actually hasn't permeated our industry enough yet to stop talking about it. I would say like two out of three people that move into management are, it's considered to be a promotion and not a career change. Like now, welcome, you're, you're now, you know, but you're now more productive theoretically than you were before because you affect more people with your work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, cool. What skills uh, that I had as a programmer now apply to this new role? And it's like, oh, n- not very many of them, actually. <laughs> None of them. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, the purely, you know, purely in, in the ability to keep up with people when they're talking about things. Uh, that's pretty much it. it is so that that basically actually the value in being a like the quality of programmer that you were before you became a manager, the only metric that that or the only axis along which that matters is bullshit detection. And because but you're because you're trying to as a manager now, I am trying to select for developers with really great bullshit sensors to say, I have learned that past a certain point, the highest value a programmer can offer is is there's a certain point at which programming skill is not that much more valuable. Yeah. And the value is in their ability to detect the nine out of 10 things that are actually bullshit. Mm-hmm. And they write, ten, you, like, there is such a thing as a 10x programmer and they're writing 0.1x code. Yeah. You yeah. Of, Like, that tells me you're probably a pretty good programmer if you're writing less code as you get, as you, as you move forward. Uh, because you're spending more time detecting which parts of the code are, shouldn't be written in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that takes energy. So, and that's a ton of that. And that actually makes a person more effective. That is hugely valuable. So that, you know, that, that skill, sure. As you become a manager, that part is valuable to be able to kind of like assess developers along their bullshit detection axis when they start talking about architectures and you're like, nope, you have derailed your, you know, event driven horseshit architecture (laughs) to solve a problem that just needs an if statement. No, absolutely not. Uh You have, uh, you have derailed and then beyond that, trust your people, but have a, you know, keep your bullshit detector on so that, but the reason that happens is, is management track is ready made with promotions that run up through somebody's entire career. Mm-hmm. And so we basically just pull the eject lever on the engineer track. Cause we go, I don't know what to do with more experienced engineers than you. And my organization doesn't know what to do. So we're just going to eject and put you into a track that has a known path up past here. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not just that the engineer doesn't know what else to do and doesn't see the other options. They don't see it because they don't exist. And yeah. their management team doesn't see it because it doesn't exist. And it's not that it couldn't exist. And there are people trying to make it exist. And that's an imperfect process right now. Because what what do you what do you reward? If you want to create so so I want to talk about this for a second. Let's assume that the answer to this question is to create an upward track for engineers. What is the reward system, what do you look for? What traits, attributes, skills, output, what do you look for in someone who's got two decades of experience or three decades of experience versus, you know, half a decade or one decade of experience? Uh, What do you look for in that and reward and then reward commensurate with that in terms of output? I think 
I mean, this is going to be very informed by my own experience, but I think at some point what you are looking for is boils down to like communication and empathy. I I think that you you need to hit a baseline level of, of technical proficiency. I say baseline. And what, what I mean by that is like, I, I mean, like truly a baseline, not you don't need to have very much technical proficiency. I think I think it is important that, you know, you like continue to level up to where like if need be, you can you can be the person who is, you know, in charge of production software and, and you know, shipping something like if you were to go to a startup, you could you could be the person who like is engineer one or at least something like that. I think you need to be able to have enough clout to be able to stake your reputation on, on technical decisions. But most people hit that at some point beyond that. I think now we are rewarding the ability to negotiate with other parts of the company, the ability to detect bullshit. Like you said, the ability to teach others, um, the ability to have empathy for the other people on the team, because you're now at the point where you're not the one doing like implementing every individual piece of, of this, of this like program. And if you are trying to, to lead the team in a way that you are essentially implementing every piece of the program indirectly, you are going to fail. That is a guarantee. So now you are in the, the, the position of needing to, to kind of like guide and lead and empower the people who are, are working with you. So that they can learn to make their own decisions. They can level up. What I find a lot of times is that you have people who who just continue to drill down on the technical side and just keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. And in some case, like best case scenario, that is that is marginal, marginal, marginal value over over where they were several years ago. More often, it actually ends up having a negative effect. They get so far down a rabbit hole, so into their own head that they're actually detracting from the people around them, from the team that is like, hey, this guy, this person, is they're an architect. You're going to go work with them because they are a wizard. And and then you do that, and what you find is like most of their ideas are nonsense, and, and they can't adapt to the, the skill sets and abilities and learning styles of the people on the team, and, and they just kind of end up, dragging everyone along with them and you end up with something that looks like a mess in the end because no one was on the same page. Yeah. And, and you watch that and, and it's the attitude that that person is uh, powerful and to be looked up to and that that's the, you know, the terminus point for people's career that this person who's, who's uh, value curve to the organization has peaked and is actually falling off because of their drilling is actually a major contributor to how this levels off is this fantasy that your technical bench press numbers, that as you learn to bench press harder and harder technical problems, that that is infinitely valuable. When the fact is that your raw skill, that it is absolutely true that for the first five to seven, maybe 10 years of your career, becoming a more skilled programmer, able to tackle harder and harder problems on your own continues to be linearly valuable or even exponentially valuable. Yeah. There is a period of time where that just, you know, the value of that grows and grows and is rewarded more and more, but nobody ever really says here is the point at which your technical skills have leveled off. 
in terms of the value they provide to this organization. And I need you to broaden your horizons because now it's about going somewhere together. You know, your technical bench press does matter for standing up, actually even matters less than than people assume for standing up a, a startups stuff solo. You and I have seen this where somebody with a really theoretically strong technical bench press uh, built some inordinately complex uh, solutions to problems that a, a startup didn't have yet. Yep. Less experienced people would have solved problems at the appropriate level uh, that could then be modified or thrown away without a year and a half of and millions of dollars of upfront investment. And so these people are a liability at that point. And so teaching somebody the concept, uh, a friend of mine wrote an article, I don't think it's been published yet, uh, called like, it's about engineers who've been uh, pushed into management or moved into management or whatever. And, and it was like titled something like welcome to the world of meta productivity mm -hmm. and the loss of sense of productivity. And if you feel like you're just more and more and more productive individually as a software engineer and you're at year 10 or whatever, you've probably, you're probably in that delusional spot uh, because if your, your job should become less satisfying as yeah. time goes on. Yeah. It's less satisfying to be meta productive uh, in the moment. You're not opening and closing pull requests. You're advising and guiding and teach. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you're teaching the activities that you're participating in uh, are about meta productivity, about making other people around you better. Those are really hard to visualize. They're hard to recognize. They're hard to quantify. They're hard to measure. And some of the people that I know that are the best at the what I would consider that meta productivity stuff as a developer, if they were a manager, that would be recognized as valuable contribution. Yeah. But as a developer, it's often used as a demerit where other people look and they go, I don't see them lifting rocks as big as we lift. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, they're actually lifting bigger rocks than you in terms of the value provided to the organization. But it's a little harder to measure yeah. uh, that, that meta productive behavior, like connecting with other teams and spending time kind of resolving potential conflicts between two teams and saying, hold on, hold on, you're working on this. Well, we're working on this. Maybe we should work on this other thing together that solves both of our problems. Uh, and go a little slower and solve this one time correctly instead of like throwing a bunch of effort into this, doing the same thing twice in two different teams and then trying to merge them later. Like really great engineers I know do that kind of stuff, but that is very difficult to recognize. And our reward systems aren't really set up for that in engineering most of the time. Yeah. I find uh, as a person who honestly does a lot of the things that you just said and enjoys them a great deal, I find that it is you are perpetually in a very confusing state and, and sometimes you get lucky and, and, you know, you have a manager who, who recognizes the value in that, or you have a whole organization who recognizes the value in that. Sometimes you're not so lucky, but there is this constant push and pull between like, you know, I am spending a lot of time in either like actually organized meetings or ad hoc meetings or pairing um, or mentoring, which is different than pairing, even though they can sometimes look the same. And I can like point to places all over the team or the organization at any given day where I added value. And then, but if you look at like the sprint board, I may have moved one ticket from beginning to done that whole week. And it may be a relatively simple ticket. And it's like, yeah, because I, I did that whole ticket in about an hour and a half. I did it very quickly. But I did it in an hour and a half window that I had free spread across like three 30 minute chunks throughout the week. But here's all this other stuff that I did. And I luckily like that is not like I have not received any grief about that at my current job. I'm very thankful for that. But but there is especially like earlier on in, in this job, particularly 
I was worried that that was going to be an issue. You know, that someone was going to look and be like, yo, you're not. I mean, the numbers tell a really uh, upsetting story here. And that, that has not happened. But it's a it's a tough feeling to shake until you really feel like you've you've established your reputation broadly enough that people are are going to see those numbers and know not just give you the benefit of the doubt, but know that 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 they do not tell the whole story. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I know that I don't know if people get sick of us harping on this, but I'm just can't not a lot of the benefit of the doubt that you might be given as a white bearded dude in tech of like, oh, I assume that person is up to the kind of glue work that is going to yield technical benefits in the future. And people who aren't white dudes in tech aren't given that same benefit of the doubt a bunch of the time. And so as a manager, I've had to fight harder. Uh, to avoid people drawing negative conclusions when a person, a woman or a person of color is doing that same glue work that, and so you'll see, uh, I know a lot of people who are in, you know, other categories or at different intersections of, uh, you know, of like women of color in tech or whatever that have to put a totally technical face on, even if they know that what they're, the value, even when they know the value is in that, that glue work, they have to avoid it on purpose because they know they'll be judged more harshly for participating in that rather than the hardcore technical work. And usually earlier in a career, those same people are like, yeah, I think that's fine. You know, I'm technical and blah, 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 and I'm respected. And then later in their career, they start getting pissed off that those other doors aren't even open to them. And so as that, as that value curve starts to level off, I think it might, you know, level off harder and earlier for people who aren't in our position of just deep privilege. So it's, it's, I think it's, I don't know why it just feels worth pointing that out that, wow, like this thing is tough even for us. And it wasn't what caused me to go into management, but it was a gravity that was like, well, I like that type of work Mm -hmm. and I prefer it to the raw technical work that happens to be, you know, in the track that I chose is, is now recognized. Oh, I see my career ladder and it has all of those traits and attributes and skills and t- activities laid out in front of me on it for, you know, higher and higher levels of meta productivity. That's really interesting because that ladder doesn't end until you run the place versus a technical ladder, which may or may not include that type of work. I've seen career technical career ladders that are very focused on technical skill sets and very focused on, well, then you grow your technical architecture skills and your meta productivity is on how difficult a system you can hold in your head. And it's like, man, that is so fucked. Yeah. Cause the system is people and, and (laughs) working within a system of people is ultimately where all of the value whether you're on the manager track or the technical track, mm-hmm. it's the system of people around you that winds up being the most complex part of your software. Yeah, and you have to be really careful with that kind of, of career ladder because it, it almost, it, well, not almost, it almost certainly ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy that if what you say is to work your way up the, the career ladder, you need to be able to hold more and more complex systems in your head. Well then it's inevitable that the people wanting to climb that career ladder are eventually going to start designing more and more complex systems. That is, wow, that is really true. I have absolutely seen that. Yeah, so like, I think that when I think about, okay, so what do you do about this? This is kind of a bummer to look at this and go, wow, my career options are limited if I like doing the software, but I recognize where the value actually happens and I want to reclaim some of that value. Like, what can I actually do? And I think you mentioned it a couple times where it's like, well, if you're in a place that recognizes that, you're a lot better off. And there are a lot of places that don't. And all I can say is I've been in both and I would strongly recommend preferring the ones that do. 
that sh- and I would ask, show me your career ladder. Like what, yeah. show me what, what skills, traits, attributes, and output contribute to people getting promoted. Just and in an interview, I would actually ask this question. Like, think about this question in an interview. Tell me about a person that was promoted recently. What was it about their performance that caused them to get promoted? What do they do differently? Yeah. And, and if you're feeling really, really froggy, you can say, tell me about a person that was let go for performance reasons. Like, what is it that gets somebody fired here? Yeah. Yeah. I want to know what the rules are. If you, and if you can't clearly explain to me what the rules are, what's get somebody dismissed versus what gets somebody promoted, then you're probably not a mature enough organization for somebody at my experience and skill level. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Go hire a bunch of newbies. You can all figure it out together. Yeah, go for it. I'm not, but I'm not here to teach it to you. And I'm sure as shit not here to, to not benefit from that lack of experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes st- startups a harder and harder and less and less palatable option for people like me and you. Mm-hmm. Like, remember when we were at a startup together and it was like, you people don't know what the fuck you're doing at all. Yep. And they're like, yeah, isn't it great? And we're like, no, it's not great. <laughs> it's so fun. Every day is an adventure. Yeah. Like, let your 23-year-old developer work until three in the morning solving a problem that didn't need to be solved in the first place. That was a manufactured problem from man- mismanagement. Like, that's that's fine. Y'all enjoy that. But that's, that's not... Um, that's not going to contribute to the skills that get me where I want to go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. I like the idea. I think it's hard to give much more meaningful solutions because man, if we had those, we would, uh, we'd probably be doing something else. If we had like the solution to the, to the engineering career ladder, we would certainly share it with you. Well, this is something that I've thought about a lot and I've invented my own career ladders in the past Mm -hmm. and I've given conference talks about, God, this problem is so pernicious. Like, how do you identify the traits and attributes that, that cause somebody to be recognized as senior? And, and I'm, you know, I'm flattered that people have, I'm flattered and then ultimately horrified by the fact that people have taken some of the things that I've published and built things around them, their own career ladders or whatever, uh, because these are opinions that I held four or five years ago that I don't yeah. necessarily know that I can stand by today. Yeah. So like, don't listen to people like me, but do, do, do your homework and do have one having a career ladder at all, at least clarifies the contract. Like if your if your company doesn't have a career ladder or growth framework, don't let up on that. That is the most, if, if you think on what do we hire for? What do we promote on? What do we, you know, performance review on? What do we fire somebody for? You cannot do those. We can't continue to do that based on the whims and opinions of whoever the person is in charge Mm -hmm. and, you know, rough team feedback like, oh, well, we 360 reviewed this person and they're they're out of here. And you're like, on what grounds? Like, what did they do? You know, what what was negative about it? Yeah. Uh, Was the environment negative and the positive person was ejected? Like, congratulations on deepening your toxic culture. I've definitely seen and even participated in that. So the most important thing you could do is establish an external anchor and then use that to drive as much as you can and learn from it and adapt it. Uh, and it starts with writing this shit down. And there are um, open source, not, you know, or like at least open ladders from, I don't know, like I think, uh, I think Stripe did it. And I think some other companies look for Laura Hogan's work on this. There are people who are publishing their career ladders saying, Here is, here's what we do and value. I really hope someday the company I work for today publishes theirs. It's not perfect, but it's very good. Mm-hmm. And it's so nice. I have a whole system I use to make sure that that anchors our conversations to say, hey, we're starting to talk about promotion. Let's evaluate you along these axes. It looks like you're lighting up, you know, 
eight of 10 of the things that we were really looking for. Mm -hmm. That's a great candidate for a promotion. Let's talk more about this versus, uh, and then having performance conversations with people who are struggling and saying, you're not meeting these couple of things here. And they're, they're not just technical output. It's like, you're not communicating clearly with people and people get confused when they talk to you and they get frustrated. And I'm seeing this out, this consistently where, and so on this, you know, one thing on the engineering ladder, you are not meeting the standard of the role that you're currently in. We're not talking about promotion. We're talking about your performance in your current role. And it's about non-technical stuff. And it turns out two thirds of the stuff that matters about your job is non-technical. And so about two thirds of the things on your engineering ladder should not be directly technical. Uh, communication and leadership and emotional maturity. And, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work in a place that has a reasonably well-structured framework for this. If you don't have that fight for it, it's worth it. Select a workplace if you can, that has it. If you are in a place where that matters to you, like if you are in a place where you're in a part of your career, where your upward trajectory is no longer, no longer super clear or easy that, Hey, you ship more code, you get more money, you stay here. Like that's fine for the first five to seven years. And then it gets really weird. Yeah. Or you're from an underrepresented group and it, and you know that the rules aren't going to be applied uniformly. Like at least having that stuff written down helps flatten that out somewhat. That's the only, like, there's probably so much more we can and should do as an industry around this, but that's like such an elementary starting point that I have. I'm just going to keep fighting for that. Uh, like it is so difficult to get that built, recognized, used consistently in an organization that I, I, it's hard for me to imagine taking any further steps until you've done that. Because beyond that, it's just the opinion of your manager. Yeah. And God forbid your manager should change roles and suddenly you're like, your career reboots every time your manager switches up. Yeah, that's a very scary prospect. <laughs> it's a real problem. Uh-huh. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> that's very tough. I like that. I think that's great. I like the idea you also mentioned earlier about like very proactively interviewing the company that you are interviewing with. Um, that's always a good idea, but it's I think specifically interviewing about this kind of stuff um, is also like I think that will be a tough question for a lot of companies to answer. And I think it's awesome to ask them to answer it for people with privilege. That's a really great way to use it. Yeah. If you have, if you find yourself as like a sought after person and you have a reasonably safe position where you're sought after, you're in a high demand role, you're perceived to be powerful in some way that you have some privilege, like you're a white dude in tech and you're interviewing at a place and you can ask these questions and say, Hey, I'm, I'm curious what you do around these things. That's a relatively safe question for you to ask. Mm -hmm. It may not be safe for people who is a, a person that is a junior developer or, you know, comes from a non-traditional background within their organization who doesn't have as much power. When you're in an interview position, you actually have a tremendous amount of power because they're trying to woo you. They're trying to sell you the role. And if they can't sell it to you because they're missing some key stuff in their organization, it at least lets them know, oh, we're losing out on candidates we might want mm -hmm. because we don't have fundamental things that, that more experienced people are looking for. Like that is a very solid way to exercise some, some privilege that you have. I think that's good. I think that's a good place <laughs> to wrap up. Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about this with you. No this is something it's been on my mind for, you know, five or six years ever since I, like, as I broke into the industry, it was so hard to break in and I still think that's worth fighting for, but I'm have enough distance on that, that I don't fight as hard for it as I used to, like how difficult that is. I'm more thinking about people that, that I directly manage and that can struggle sometimes to find their way up in, in, in this industry where they, 
you know, God bless the people that can be doing this for 30 years and are like, this is my joy. This is what I want to do every day. I've been writing code since I was 11 years old. I want to write it until my last day of retirement and I don't want to do anything else. Like, I just want to be the greatest single individual contributor in the traditional sense that I can be. And it's like, God bless you. That's great. That's useful on a team. But that's not going to, you know, let's not build our entire career framework around the minority yeah. of people that don't give a shit. Yeah. Let's figure out how to build it for the people who do. Yeah. And make sure there's room for both. You've been, uh, you've been on this, this hustle for a long time. I'm pretty sure that one of the first things I ever heard you say was on a podcast before we knew each other about this exact same question about like, what, what does it truly mean to be a senior engineer and, and how we define senior incorrectly and that senior should really take into account all of a person's experience, like even non-programming experience and all these other things. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. I guess I'm never going to stop banging this drum. When you talk about something for five to 10 years consistently, I think you may have found something that you really care about. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think you're in the right place for that. You, yeah. You've On this podcast yourself. with my friend, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I meant more like management, but sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that too. That too. Speaking of which, speaking of podcast stuff, I'll just break the news really fast. So, this is something that, that is a joy for Chris and I to participate in. That said, it's also a tremendous drain in terms of time and treasure. This is an expensive thing for us to do. We, we, we ran some calculations this morning on how much money that we've collectively spent doing this. And the cost to making this podcast sustainable is basically to turn it into something that's, that it's not, which would be like, you know, making it more commercially viable and doing a lot more marketing and trying to find sponsorships. And it was like, this isn't what we came here to do, but it's also not something it just, it costs money to run. And so there will, you know, we'll, we'll describe more in, in our next episode, which will be in a couple of weeks. But the plan is we're going to close the chapter on this podcast that we're, yeah. we're going to go out with uh, a retrospective. So the next episode that you hear will be the last episode. And we would like to end it on a very positive note. Because like Brandon said, you know, it's been a joy to do this, even though sometimes it's a real drag uh, getting yourself onto the mic in the first place. But what we want to do is, is have our final episode be kind of a look back on what we're proud of and, you know, episodes we liked, things we liked. And we want you to participate in that if at all possible and so we are looking for any suggestions of favorite episodes or favorite topics or jokes or i don't know anything that stands out out to you that you really like if you would like to tweet those at us um, or dm them to us or whatever you know we will obviously bring some of our favorites as well but if anyone has anything that they feel like calling out you know we would love to hear it so we can we can include that in, in our retrospective. But yeah, we'll talk more about that, you know, in the next episode. But we wanted to give everyone a heads up that that's that's where things are going. Yeah. And again, please do send send us thoughts. And the, a, a lot of what's driven us to continue doing this has been positive feedback we've gotten from people. We really love that people enjoy this. Uh, it just given other constraints in our lives right now, it feels like it's kind of run its course and would really love to hear from people what, what they may have like taken from it in this time. And would love to build like a little mini retrospective of some of our favorite stuff and stuff we hear from people. So please do send that to us. We are at copy paste pod on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Ted Viking. 
I'm at 15 letter max. And the best way to help the show right now is to send us good vibes. We really appreciate it. We appreciate the past good vibes and future good vibes. And we will see you again one more time. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody.